Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... Can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. I am, um, I'm back. I am not, um, firing on all cylinders or at 100%, but I am vastly improved. For those who didn't know I had a, a deviated septum surgery that, um, um, to use a clinical term, beat the crap out of me. Um, just left me a hot mess. And um, um, I basically spent about six days, felt like there was a, a medium sized monkey fist um, clenched right between my two eyes, behind my nose, my sinuses. And every now and then, uh, the monkey felt like counting to five with his fingers. It was um, excruciatingly uncomfortable and unpleasant. And uh, uh, yesterday, I got the, the, the splints out of my nose so I could breathe again. And for a little while, um, I, it felt so good to be able to actually breathe um, and to have the pressure relieved. I'll spare you the gory details that... Um, I thought I had, you know, I don't know that I had taken some sort of wonder drug, some sort of limitless, you know, spice, vampire blood, whatever. I was on cloud nine running around. Um, um, and I couldn't believe how good food tasted again because I'd lost all sense of taste. I couldn't believe how bad downtown DC smelled. Um, it was just, it was just an astonishing kind of thing. And then be grateful you don't still live in Manhattan. Yeah. And then reality kind of swept back in last night and I realized I'm not at a hundred percent. I'm just so much, I'm a thousand percent better than I was 24 hours ago, which I'll take. Um, but I still, it's still like I have, you know, a kind of rough head cold and I'm still not sleeping great. Um, and, uh, I still see this, this giant multicolored turtle following me around saying, find your soulmate Homer. So, um, I'm a little bit of a mess. And so, uh, not wanting to inflict any of that, the, the potential for unprofessionalism or sloth um, on an official guest of the remnant, we decided instead uh, there was zone, really no downside to doing it with Guy. Uh, so uh, my amanuensis from AEI, Guy uh, Denton, is back. Uh, and we're going to do an, an Ask Me Anything thing. Um, Guy, welcome back to the remnant. Thank you for having me. It feels good to not have a monkey fist shoved up my nose that was a very colorful metaphor for it it was it was more of an analogy just to be technical yeah technical um if i had simply said the monkey fist in my nose <laughs> it would have been a metaphor but by using like or as it makes it an analogy doesn't it make it a simile 
or a simile. Correct. Yes, that's fine. Um, you guys, I know you've purged all your memory banks of your entire childhood in, in that other country, but do you guys have the equivalent of an SAT over there? Uh, no. Uh, basically, standardized testing doesn't exist. It does for certain degrees at certain schools, but for the most part, no. It'll come getting into college is there isn't even really a personal essay component to college applications or anything like that. They don't put much weight on extracurriculars. It's all just about raw uh, high school grades. And whether like your great great grandfather killed a dragon or something. Oh, absolutely. Yes. And pulled a thorn from a troll's paw and got three wishes or something. So um, uh, you can attest that I have not seen any of these questions beforehand. You're. Uh, Credited by Coopers and Librand and all of this. As usual, yes. Went up to the White Room at AEI and talked to the senior partners of Wolfram and Hart through the conduit. Excellent. And it, is, it has been approved and the Shanshu prophecy has been signed away. So you have no escape. Excellent. Um, let's just, uh, get, well, first of all, have you been to any new Kiss concerts lately? <laughs> the uh, No, not lately. Actually, as of right now, the next extravaganza I have planned isn't until the end of the year uh wow. end of november after thanksgiving beginning of december i don't know if you wanted to be outed publicly so i have to be careful about this but you know i did this uh introduction of cliff asness for this award at the oh no at the manhattan institute it was it was a lovely night i think cliff did a fantastic job um um in his actual remarks and i i think i was fine in my introduction but then afterwards I was schmoozing with people talking to people and, if, and a somewhat prominent person that you've heard of came up to me and says, that British guy works for you. It's like, all I want are more episodes about the kiss stuff. And I was like, what? <laughs> and uh, it went on for a while. I was like, yeah, I'm a huge, what are you, uh, kiss head? I don't know what you guys call yourselves. Kiss army, kiss army member, I guess. Yeah, kiss army. Yeah. I, he's like, I'm a, I'm like a, I'm a decorated soldier in the kiss army. I some nonsense like this. I'm not a person I would expect. We can cut. We can cut this out if if I'm correct, or you don't want to say. Was it Abe Greenwald? It was not Abe Greenwald. Okay, but he is a huge Kiss fan. I found out recently, which shocked me. You know, for some reason, you know, I don't know Abe that well. Met him a few times. I sort of know him mostly from the podcast and from email and stuff. But that does kind of shock me. But he's been shocking me a lot lately. He married this beautiful. Oh, I saw that. Yeah, Cantor. Um, you know, which is just sort of like first of all, beautiful and Cantor don't normally go together. And look, all due respect to Abe Grimald, I respect the guy enormously. You just like, hey, did you see that he married this this really hot canter? It's like not a sentence I would have normally have expected to associate with Abe Grimald. But anyway, so there, he he can, can contain multitudes. He's full of surprises. We should get him on here and just like, are you the most interesting man in neoconservatism or something? Because uh, <laughs> bar is low, but still, yeah, he probably is. All right, so. Uh, I will let you know who the guy is because he wanted your contact info. And I thought I sent it to him and, um, you know, we'll see what happens next. Okay. Um, I'm sure I'm going to be horribly disappointed when I find out who it actually was. But I have a well, question for you. Do you think it's more or less insane? Do you think it's more insane to go on a cruise dedicated to KISS, as I already did, or to do what I'm going to do at the end of the year, which is go up to Baltimore, then up to New York for three concerts back to back, which are allegedly the final concerts ever, but nonetheless. 
How many times, just out of curiosity, have they said these are the final concerts? I mean, uh, well, I mean, this this tour, which is supposedly the final tour, has been going on for about five years. Uh, and there was one other farewell tour about 20 years ago. Um, I look, I mean, I can't denigrate cruises too much. I, 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 I can denigrate kiss cruises to the cows come home. But, uh, you know, people, there are people who really just love cruises. And um, I've been on some fun cruises and I've been on some cruises that were work. I don't know, Baltimore to New York um, to see a bunch of concerts. I think that's not nearly as crazy as like going on a vessel where it's very difficult to flee if things get weird. Um, um, and where you have to have mandatory meals with other kiss fanatics it's just a that's a different order of them like yeah i'm gonna i'll see you at the concert i'm gonna go hit the diner or whatever i mean like it's just, i'm all about escape valves right and so like being on a boat where there's no escape um uh with with kiss fanatics just it's, it's a it's a next level i'm just gonna put it that way to the substance of what is already a riveting discussion changing the course of american politics oh yeah but I already, I hopefully I set expectations pretty low when we began. So, uh, all right, let's, let's, uh, why don't we start with some punditry? Do you have some punditry? Oh, okay. Well, I was, I was <laughs> quickly, if you're okay to start here, I was going to say, first of all, I thought it was pretty hilarious that no one asked, I may have missed it or I may be misremembering. I don't believe a single listener asked about you and your condition or even put in any nice words, but numerous people <laughs> asked how the how the dogs are doing and also how the thune is doing if you could shed any light on yeah, that it's, 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 nature is healing that's that's the way it should be um uh uh i got lots of notes of concern from people so i'm i'm a little shocked maybe they just the people we got all the ama questions from had already independently contacted me and wished me nothing but the best. Yeah, the Venn diagram has a lot of overlap i imagine. Uh and it's not like i broadcasted this too much about this but you know i did miss a show because i was out of swords i mean what what did starwalt say just these did he say I'm, i haven't had a chance to listen to it yet did he say i was actually sick or, or out of it or under the weather or you just... uh, i i believe he did yeah okay. uh, and i refrained from putting anything too insulting in the description but i think i mentioned it there too okay well um uh dogs are fine um uh it's a somewhat tragic situation. Well, potentially tragic, just frustrating situation right now. Zoe, the dingo, the Carolina dog, the, the white trash swamp dog, um, has decided that the puppy bear from the dog park, um, is getting way too much attention and, um, and she's jealous of him and bear doesn't care and comes charging up at Zoe. And I have to hold Zoe very still, um, and very securely lest Zoe teach bear a terrible lesson. And it's very sad and I wish they could be friends, but I just can't risk them, uh, an altercation until bear gets big enough to fight back. Um, Zoe's got a very much WC fields, get away from me, kid. You're bothering me kind of vibe when it comes to puppies. Fafoon. So Fafoon and Paddington for listeners who don't know and care, which is a much smaller subset of listeners who don't know and don't care, um, were my mom's cats. They are fine. They are thriving. They are basically living in a three-store estate, three-floor estate in Weehawken, New Jersey, where they are visited daily um, uh, by my friend Drew, and and we were also have people staying there frequently. 
So uh, they are running the roost and um, I see them quite often myself. They, of course, miss my mom, but that's to be expected. They're also cats, so they're capable of moving on uh, more than um, even most other quadrupeds. Um, but they're having a good time. And now that the weather's nice, they can go hang out on the back deck and, and, and cast really kind of snobby upper crust um, aspersions at the street cats that drew feeds out back of the house. But all the animals are fine. My daughter, including my daughter, who's home from college, um, not particularly excited to see the dogs, but, um, falls over herself to see Gracie, our cat. So there you go. And the cats continue to live in a nicer cage than I do. Oh yeah. Those cats live much better lives than you do. I mean, my, I mean, like it's not even close. Unquestionably. <laughs> yes. Um, someone else asked that I think I'd throw this in because if several people complained, including directly to me last time, but there wasn't enough pet content. Uh, how do you feel about huskies and sight hounds? Would or have <laughs> you ever have one as a pet? I think Huskies are great dogs. I think it's difficult for people who don't own them to see the full range of their personality because they kind of come across as pretty stoic, but they can actually have a pretty good sense of humor with their families. Um, um, I've seen quite a few Huskies up in Alaska. Um, although people don't people, Hollywood always portrays Huskies as the, as the major sled dogs and all these like a Diderot kind of sled dog movies and all that kind of stuff and Balto and all that. Um, uh, fun fact, one of the only times my mom made an arrest when she was a mounted policewoman was when some kids were spray painting the statue of Balto in Central Park. But that's a story for another day. Um, um, <laughs> she let the muggers get away unimpeded, but <laughs> that's <laughs> defacing the statue. That couldn't stand. Well, maybe. Maybe it was also she could actually catch someone in the act of doing something on a horse, which is not always as easy as it sounds. And while it's true that Huskies and those big Husky-like dogs, Mount Samoyeds and those kind of things, Malmeids, um, people do use them as sled dogs, but they're like the tugboats of the sled dog world. Um, they're not super fast. They're super strong. They like to pull. They're pulling dogs. They're sort of like uh, Bernie's Mountain Dogs. They are great at pulling. That's what they were bred for is like looking absolutely fabulous because they're probably the most handsome dog breed in the world. Um, but they would pull wagons in the Alps. They wouldn't do it fast. They'd just pull them. And Huskies and those big boned, um, Arctic dogs are bred to be kind of aloof and they're the workhorses of the dog world to put it weirdly. Um, but the ones who do it for speed are much smaller and much more yappy and jumpy and, um, and much more muddy because they're just not breed for looks at all, bred for looks at all. Um, in terms of sight hounds, I mean, like greyhounds and that kind of thing, I, I've never owned one. Um, the only hound, official hound I've ever owned was a basset hound, the noblest of breeds. Um, but he was a scent hound, obviously. And, um, and the differences between scent hounds and sight hounds is, are, are pretty profound. Um, um, I guess Zoe and Pippa both come closer to a sight hound insofar as they're more visually oriented than um, scent oriented. Um, Pippa, because she was bred to find birds or tennis balls, apparently, um, in, in your native country. And, um, and Zoe, because she's, um, she's a feral creature that um, tracks her play visually and then kills it. Um, 
mercilessly and um, with um, zero remorse. Uh, so not, a, not, not as much as she used to. Zoe hasn't killed anything in a few years, which I'm, I'm pretty happy about. But um, I'm trying to think of other sighthounds. Like Afghan hounds, I assume, are sighthounds. They were mostly bred by guys on horseback to hunt stuff and um, get out ahead um, of the riders. So I just don't know their personalities really well. I've never really liked greyhounds, but I have friends who have greyhounds um, and they've adopted them, which I think is nice because great dog racing is gross and how they've historically treated dogs. But there's just some of these, it's sort of like huskies. It's like, you got to know some dogs to see what the personality and the breed is like. And um, I just don't, I don't know enough personally to, to say one thing or another. Uh, well, uh, turning to punditry and speaking of people who have lived worse lives than animals, uh, pe- many people, as you would expect, asked about the GOP candidates. And one question to start with is, which currently declared GOP candidate do you think is the best hope for a less Trumpy GOP, if there even is one? Um, okay, so... I'm going to interpret that question as if they got the nomination, would they be the most successful at de-Trumpifying the party? I think that's right. Yeah. It's an interesting way to think about it. Currently declared. So we're talking about Asa Hutchinson, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, and that's it, right? I mean, who, who, I I guess DeSantis can count or will count after this comes out. Yeah. I mean, so I, I think it's actually a tougher, more nuanced question than, um, it might seem because, okay, so you got you to have to plot these things out. Somebody else gets the nomination. Does Trump then say, congratulations, well, well fought, well won. You are noble competition. I endorse you heartily. Let's all work together to win in the fall. Very unlikely. Exceedingly unlikely, right? <laughs> so does the, the hardcore Trump faction in the party like leave literally leave the party. Um, I don't think all of it does, but I don't think all of it stays either. Um, and then does the party lose simply because enough of the Trump vote um, stayed home? Yes. I think that's probable. Um, I don't know if it's probable. I think that's very plausible. Um, I also think that a, a party that eventually explicitly rejects Trump wins back a lot of voters that's lost and wins back a lot of voters that the Democrats have lost, but the Republicans have not yet won. Um, so it's kind of hard to game out all of that. The, so one of the questions you have to ask is which candidates, even if Trump plays somewhat nice after losing, um, which candidate is going to do the best at co-opting enough Trumpy voters while at the same time moving in a non-Trumpy direction. I don't know that, I mean, DeSantis might just move in a Trumpy direction, right? And so, like, is he going to really de-Trumpify a party? Um, I want to be clear, I would take DeSantis over Trump, and happily so, a thousand times um, out of a thousand, but um, I don't know that he is the best vehicle for successfully de-Trumpifying the party. I think the person who personifies the, the, the least Trumpy aspects of the party um, probably Tim Scott, um, just because he kind of wears his niceness on his sleeve. He's, I think he's a sincere Christian. I do not, I know it's poor form to doubt people's religious faith, but 
I doubt Donald Trump's religious faith. Um, uh, um, and Tim Scott is extremely patriotic, but not particularly nationalistic. Um, and the fact that he's African American will arouse in certain fever swamp types a kind of reaction that um, will make it easier for people to reject the broader warp and woof of of Trumpism, even though I don't think Trumpism is all a bunch of racism or anything like that. There are a lot of people in the Trumpy ambit or orbit who can't help themselves in terms of refusing to condemn people who are racist. And um, all of that will would help detoxify, I think, the party by drawing some clear lines. I mean, this has been my thing for eight years now, right? Is like I kind of a big fight with Hugh Hewitt about this with a bunch of people is that we may the right made this monumentally grotesque and idiotic decision to have a popular front with the alt-right types. And when in fact, what the right needed to do was brighten and sharpen the lines and say, this is as far as you can go and no farther without being um, sort of shunt as the Amish might say um, among conservatives. And instead we, we blurred all the lines and I think it was a disastrous decision. And because of the responses that Tim Scott might elicit, I think it would be the project of, of redrawing those lines would be aided. That said, I think Nikki Haley is very good at sort of, um, you know, she, the way she handled the Confederate thing was very adept. The way she handle, handles various factions in the party is very adept. I, I don't think she would be terrible. It just like the actual Trumpy stuff doesn't come naturally to her, um, which is both, uh, praise and criticism. It's praise because it, I think Nikki Haley is, I, mean, I know Nikki Haley a little bit. Um, she's fundamentally a decent person. Um, it's also a, a, a criticism because she's fundamentally a decent person and yet she goes and does, makes compromises I don't think that she should make. You know, Mike Pence, uh, who's been showing me something of late, I've been very tough on Mike Pence over the last thousand years, but, um, you know, Mike Pence actually believes a lot of that civility stuff. And, um, and I think he's kind of shown it not only during the presidency, which made him look very beta male and it's kind of like a sap, but in the post presidency and, um, the tone and tenor of his presidency would just be very different than what the, the Trump is, whether that successfully the reason why, one of the reasons why I'm stumbling on this is because I'm drugged up. But another one is that um, you have to sort of do dynamic scoring on this and you have to think about how people respond to the attempt to de-Trumpify the party. And um, like Asa Hutchinson, I think a lot of the sort of Trumpy right would eat him alive um, because he just doesn't know how to talk to people. I think Vivek Ramaswamy, who's a, apparently a very frequent guest on cable news um, would be a joke at trying to do this because I don't think he's got any political instincts worth speaking of. He's got good performative instincts and all that kind of stuff. But again, I don't think he's going to go very far. Um, but Pence knows where the bodies are buried and he has longer relationships with a lot of um, people on the right that I think that if he were to successfully get the nomination, um, he could claim to be upholding the mantle of Trump while at the same time 
defenestrating a lot of the Trumpists. Um, I just, I'm still very skeptical you can get the nomination. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Um, well, in that you basically answered every other question oh, did I really? people had because people asked about Tim Scott, people asked about Ramaswamy, and since there aren't even that many people announced, there isn't. Yeah, I mean, let, let me just say something about Tim Scott. I said this in my LA Times column. It's up at the Dispatch today, and I listened to the first 10 minutes of the editor's podcast, and it was interesting. Jim Garrity basically made the exact same point I did, and which happens a lot. Jim and I, and Charles Cook and I see politics very often the same way, but given that I was literally in a stupor trying to write my LA Times column on Monday. I was, even though I wrote, I said this before Jim did, I was incredibly relieved that somebody who was not in a stupor, whose opinion I respect, came out to the same position. It's like, oh, so I didn't write a stupid column. Um, well, I, as far as you know, <laughs> Jim wasn't in a stupor. Fair, fair. Could have been uh, drugged up out of his mind. He does host a three a podcast called Three Martini Lunch or something. Um, but um, no, just that. Look, I I don't think Tim Scott's the the most um, talented senator. I don't think he's the most conservative senator. I don't think he's the um, has the most brilliant mastery of policy on all these things. He's more than sufficient on all of like the checklists that I can come up with for his actual qualifications sort of uh, as a, as a politician. What he is basically is just a very decent dude. And um, as, as I put it in my column was he doesn't have potential to be a serious contender for the nomination. It is not a reflection on Tim Scott's deficiencies. It's a, it's a, reflection on the deficiencies of the GOP electorate in the primaries. Um, he's too good for the primary voters right now, not the other way around. Um, and I don't mean all the primary voters. I mean the ones who have been institutionalized, as Morgan Freeman might say, um, in Shawshank Redemption, who want Trumpian politics, right? And I, I, I was saying, the DeSantis is too good for a large part of the Republican electorate because he actually, you know, I, I have my disagreements with him on all sorts of things, but he's actually providing deliverables, right? He's actually providing policy successes and legislative successes um, and electoral successes, which is what politics is supposed to deliver for people who vote in primaries. And the problem is, is that after scaring away a lot of normals and attracting a lot of, you know, 
Trumpists, I'll hold off on the, too many of the pejoratives, um, and acculturating a whole bunch of other Republicans into thinking that what Trump provides them is what you want from a president. Um, they may not be deplorable people. I mean, they're, a lot of the people who most fit the deplorable um, label or most, most avidly embrace the deplorable label in real life are kind of nice people. Um, I mean, some of them aren't, but like the distribution of unnice people is pretty uh, broad in this country. But what they want from politics is deplorable. I mean, that's the, that's the difference is the, the deplorables as a group want from politics is deplorable politics, smash mouth politics, nasty politics, performative politics, um, owning the libs politics. And um, they don't actually want decency and good character, like the way Tim Scott provides it. And they don't actually want the deliverables on, on policy victories, the way Tim, uh, the way Ron DeSantis provides them. And so those are the two, those are the only two, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's a third, but there's a, the two most obvious models for acceptable politicians is uh, uplifting, good character, decent people who um, are uplifting and raise, uh, raise people's spirits and, and, and ambitions in a positive direction um, through moral example and, and exhortation. And kind of grumpy, dickish politicians who get things done. And so, you know, and I, and I, I use dickish in a entirely non-pejorative way, right? Like, like Dick Cheney, there you go, dickish in that sense, uh, fits this model. Dick, no, Dick Cheney was not a hugger. Love Dick Cheney, right? Um, I like, I've always had a soft spot for cranky politicians who are just like, let's get this done. You know, Mitch Daniels can actually be quite funny, but, you know, he doesn't run away from the fact that he's boring most of the time. He just gets things done and he has this sort of common sense. Well, that's a stupid idea kind of attitude towards things. Um, like, I don't think Tim Scott is anywhere close to the policy, you know, guru that Mitch Daniels or, or Dick Cheney are. Um, but DeSantis might be. Anyway, they're both exemplars of what people in a party primary should want from politicians other than the obvious alliteration. And, um, um, but they've convinced themselves that Trump's nonsense, you know, what was that, that Klingenstein Yach for, who was the chairman of the Claremont Institute talking about how it's the, it's the really gross stuff about Trump that, um, is the most important and most valuable. Um, it's the feature, not the bug. It's the definition of political manliness. I think that is the most, um, that is uh, the, the limpest, most insecure, male insecure understanding of politics imaginable. But it's what a lot of people have convinced themselves um, makes sense. And so if those dogs aren't going to, those kinds of dogs aren't going to hunt with those primary voters, you really only have two options. You can finally get back on the path that we should have been on a long time ago of redrawing those bright lines, right. Of going back and explaining to your voter. I mean, like voter education used to be central to what parties did is they explained to people why they should be a Democrat or why they should be a Republican. And if they had wrong ideas, they said to them, Hey, you're wrong. Let me explain it to you. 
And instead now they say, what do you believe? Oh, you believe in that crap? Well, yeah, it's wrong, but we believe in that too, because we share your wrongness. And um, the, you know, the party has spent seven years forgiving, overlooking, dismissing um, all sorts of grotesqueries. And they've been in the business of voter maleducation. And so you can either start re trying to re-educate your voters, which is hard because a lot of GOP voters are old, cranky people. Um, or you got to do something that invites new voters into the primaries to swamp the, the people who want deplorable politics from this. And this is why, you know, I keep talking about how, you know, if we could entice normal Republicans, because they get a, a massive get out the vote effort that's not seen as for one candidate or another, but it's just seen as, look, they're taking over your party. You don't want to be a Democrat, but you can't be a Republican. Um, the way you fix this is by creating market demand for just better, better politicians. Um, I'd rather get rid of the primaries entirely, but like until um, that happens, I don't see a lot of other options. You've you got to ex explain to existing voters why they're wrong. Um, or get right voters to start voting in primaries. I, I don't, there's not, I don't know what curtain number C is. Um, I guess curtain letter C, curtain number three is words they know come easy. They sure know. Um, uh, which is why it's a perfect time to turn to some of the more nerdishly highfalutin questions that people asked. And as you would expect, many people asked about the, Historical intricacies of conservatism. I thought this was an interesting one. Is conservatism better understood as a reaction against Wilsonian progressivism and the New Deal or a reaction against the excesses of the 60s? Interesting. 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 So, I mean, I, the, 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 I can, so, so part of the problem is, you know, and this is part of my argument with, with, with Matt Continetti, um, the conservatism of the Wilson, Wilsonian era was not particularly organized or ideologically coherent. Right? The, 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 the conservatives such as they were who existed there was a lot of very libertarian streak into them in them. Albert J. Nock, H.L. Mencken, that crowd. Um, but conservatism was much more literary back then. Um, John Dos Passos and Ortega y Gasset and those kinds of people. Um, even Russell Kirk was, you know, I mean, Russell Kirk comes later, but he comes out of sort of a literary tradition as much as he um, comes out of any sort of like explicitly political um, tradition. And, um, and, uh, there's a reason why they, they were often self-described as the uh, superfluous men, right? There were these people who very much like our remnant, right? The, the idea of the remnant comes out of that, that era of the superfluous men. Um, um, Albert J. Nock writes a memoir, memoirs of a superfluous man. And he was playing on that term, which was, was out there. I don't think he coined it, but I'm open to correction on that. And, um, which is to say they were just simply not part of an organized ideological effort. Um, the Republican party in the Wazonian era was really comprised of sort of waspish 
good government types, um, waspish political hacks, and Republican progressives, you know, La Follette, you know, later TR, um, that kind of thing. It was not an ideologically coherent conservative thing um, with a real clear political program. There were some conservative tendencies to it um, that got built on over time. Um, and so by the time you get to the 1960s, though, a lot has happened. Conservatism's a thing, right? And it comes out of, in many ways, um, the superfluous men, they start organizing the cosmic dust starts pulling together and forming little planets and moons and um, during the new deal and it starts to get organized. So like by the late thirties, you have something that looks like a, again, fairly libertarian um, political opposition to the new deal. Um, but it's really the cold war that takes that, 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 that those seed crops and turns it into the conservatism that we understand where you see a, where it was perceived that there was a symmetry of sorts um, or a reflection of sorts in a totalitarianism abroad, totalitarianism abroad and the logical conclusions of Wilsonian progressivism has evolved through FDR at home. And so like, that's why the Hayek's road to serfdom argument, which again was prophecy, not prediction. Um, prophecies are warnings. They are not necessarily predictions. Um, worked both as a domestic argument and a foreign policy kind of thing, you know, because it was like, there's these, these ominous forces rising abroad and there are forces at home that are imitating them and are following their footsteps, um, on our own soil kind of thing. Some of that got excessive. We don't have to argue about the specific, you know, things. Um, and so the 1960s, there's a whole other kind of liberalism that has entered into the fray, which is, um, it's the left liberalism that the NatCons claim to dislike, um, uh, that conservatives have been complaining about for a very long time. It's sort of that the Rawlsian Rousseauian kind of self-affirmation, self-direction, um, radicalism, tearing down all existing norms, kind of, um, uh, taking the, um, using the sort of Nietzschean resentment to say, no, crime's actually good. Um, and, um, and so I definitely think that as the, cons the conservatism we see today is much more a reaction to the 1960s than it is to, um, you know, the, the, the 1919 progressivism. But the, the, but the arguments all build on each other. And um, I personally, so I've, I've long had this position where the, I mean, so there's this argument about how, you know, the, the Deneen crowd want to call people like me right liberals. Um, and it's amazing how some of the outlets that cover this stuff just simply take his word for it that I'm a libertarian. You know, it's just really kind of hilarious. Um, but uh, um, I always had, I shouldn't say always, I've, I'd come to about 10 years ago, 15 years ago, come to the conclusion that like the, the pre-Trump Claremont Institution, uh, the pre-Trump Claremont Institute 
view that the constitution is the, is the ultimate fundament of American conservatism, um, was wrong. Um, I should put it this way. was not entirely right that, um, the constitution, the constitutional stuff, uh, is you could argue is the keystone, right? I mean, if you want to get into metaphors, um, but it's not the only stone in the arch and that in reality, there is a lack of fundamentalism to conservatism that I think is overlooked by basically two groups, conservatives and non-conservatives. Um, insofar as it's very difficult when you, when you dig deep down into it to find a universal conservative dogma, because what it is, it's a portfolio of dogmas. It's a portfolio of dogmatic positions that are bound together with the cement of a, of a conservative temperament. And, um, you can take almost any single item in the portfolio out and say, and come up with an exception to it, including the constitution, which ironically was one of the reasons why I think Claremont, so many Claremonsters have lost their minds is that they have this idea. They were so obsessed. Con Nettie has, I think written about this. Um, they were so obsessed with the, the, the statesmanship of Lincoln to go outside of the constitution to save the Republic, the sort of very, the heart of the Jaffa argument that over time, they just fell in love with the idea of, you know, they, they kept saying constitution, 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 except for these great exceptions to the rule, like the civil war. And it got to the point where through a mixture of boredom and power worship and trolling, they decided that, um, uh, they're going to start arguing for exceptions all the time, right? That's what the flight 93 election argument is, is like, it's like the civil war. We have to sort of put aside all of these things, you know, all these things are really important, but not, you know, and not if you know what the situation is, right. You know, and, um, and it's, there's, it's, it's this fascinating sort of Nietzschean thing of they look so long and so hard at the abyss of finding an exception to everything that they held dear that the abyss looked into them. And so like, I've just seen these tweets in the last couple of days, people, America needs a American Pinochet, America needs, you know, all these kinds of things. And it's like, and you go and you check their bio and they're like, you know, Publius fellows or Lincoln fellows from Claremont who are saying this stuff. Um, it's, it's, it's almost novelistic. Now I know I've wandered far field from the initial question because the initial question was very hard to answer. Yeah, I can't even remember what the <laughs> original question was. Wilsonian progressivism or the 1960s. Yeah, yeah. There we go. Oh, there we go. Yeah, there we go. Well, speaking of which, um, when uh, there was another interesting one along these lines. Oh, here we go. It came from a very persistent listener who apparently has tried to ask it about five times now. And so I felt guilty if I didn't include it this time. Why is Wilson worse than FDR, who did far, far more, and this listener's opinion, destroy the fabric of the country? Where to begin? Um, There's a great book you might want to read. Yeah, no, I mean, pull, pull up a chair. I, I will let you guys get a pass on not doing the orc screams for every single mention of the guy's name. Um, all right, so first of all, I think Wilson and FDR as people, FDR was a better person. He was a nicer person. He was a better person. He was a more amiable person. Um, wasn't nearly as smart as Woodrow Wilson, um, but that came in handy. Well, there's, I can't remember who the historian was, historian was, but some famous person said, you know, FDR was a third rate intellect, but a first class temperament. I think there's a lot of truth to that in terms of how it worked for him for politics. 
it's so before my time, never mind your time. Like, I don't see how sunny and uplifting the fireside chats are and the way he talks was, but like in the argot and the, and the, the fabric of society back then, his approach was reassuring. Um, and people took a lot out of it. Wilson was a prick and, um, uh, he, uh, and I've quoted this before, but there's this great scene at the beginning of David Pietruz's book on, on, the, um, on 1920 where there's a visitor to the White House and he wants, to, he wants some advice from Colonel House, who was like the Carl Rove of the Wilson administration, on how to like get on Wilson's good side. And House doesn't take a minute. He says, find a common hatred. Um, and it's like the only way you can bond with him is finding someone is, is hating the same things that he hates. Right. Very much like Trump in some ways. Look, I mean, you can do the first of all, Wilson was indisputably more racist than FDR. Um, you know, Wilson, his attitude towards Abraham Lincoln, I always thought was among the most telling. He, the, the correct position for conservatives and I, this other group I would call Americans um, is that Lincoln's abuses of power were getting back to the sort of Claire monster point, Lincoln's abuses of power were necessary evils, right? That the suspicion, suspension of habeas corpus, shutting down of some newspapers, that kind of stuff was regrettable, but necessary for the cause of saving the union and ending slavery. Wilson's position was all that stuff was awesome. It's just a shame that he used it end slavery <laughs> and, <laughs> and so it's like one thing to say evil means justify no evil means are justified by noble ends it's another thing to say um it's a shame that you had to use evil means for noble ends right and so that's sort of wilson's there's a point that walter mcdougall makes you know that wilson was obsessed with power he just cared about power when he thought that that congress was the most powerful institution in washington uh, he wanted to be a member of Congress. He wanted to be Speaker of the House. When it became clear that the president was, he wanted to be president. Um, he, uh, I know I have uh, in foreign policy friends who still think that like the 14 points and the League of Nations and all that kind of stuff was the bee's knees. I'm just not sold, never been sold. Um, maybe we'll have, you know, Ken Pollock or somebody on here to argue about all that at some point. We've got Hal Brands coming up at some point, right? Um, yes. Maybe he can make that case. And I want to get... Um, um, uh, Robert Kagan on because um, he's got this book I keep meaning to start reading um, but anyway um, uh, what FDR did was bigger on a massive scale in terms of creating this thing that today we would call the state I mean uh, William Luchtenberg makes this point in um, one of his books on FDR and he was like the dean of FDR historians um, he says you know prior to the really prior to the, the Roosevelt administration, there was nothing that you would call, you know, Americans would not talk about the state, right? You know, the, their only interaction with, with the government was really the post office. And that was about it. And FDR does change all that. So while, while I find all of that lamentable, I can't say that every part of the New Deal was bad. I can't say the big parts of the New Deal didn't do what New Deal supposedly was supposed to do. Um, and there is an argument that FDR's personality and temperament um, helped f hold off 
far worse sort of radicalism and revolution in the country. I'm not sure I believe that either, but I don't think it's an argument that you can dismiss out of hand. Meanwhile, you don't get FDR without Wilson. First of all, FDR was a Wilson retread. Um, and virtually every, sing you, every single thing that at least the early New Deal did was built on the, the structures, institutions, and ideas of the Wilson administration. Um, I've written about it a zillion times. Basically, the, alpha, the whole alphabet soup of different agencies created under the New Deal have their precursors in the Wilson administration. Plus, um, Wilson, at least FDR did everybody the compliment of pretending to really like the Constitution. FDR said the quiet part out, I mean, uh, Wilson said the quiet part out loud and, um, and said it, it sort of outlived its utility. Um, he said that the Bill of Rights needed to be replaced um, because it was holding us back. Um, so like everything that was bad about FDR in my mind is basically standing on Wilson's shoulders and everything that is good about FDR, um, was a deviation from the overlap with, with Wilson stuff. Um, and, um, but yeah, I mean, it's one of these problems of how do you do, I mean, like when you say, you know, why isn't FDR worse? FDR was more successful. You know, he was president for life. Um, um, uh, he was more well-liked, you know, and he was more successful in turning Americans from citizens into, uh, clients of the state, which I think is terrible, but none of those ideas were unique to, to FDR. They were really were introduced by Wilson and the progressives of that, of that time. And so, you know, I'm going to be more. And I, I just focused, I'm, I'm much more of an intellectual history guy than a normal history guy. So I just, I like to focus on where the bad ideas came from more than the, you know, the good implementers of bad ideas, I guess is one way to put it. But I, I take the point. Um, and I think it's really, it's still, Continenti doesn't have a good answer for this. Uh, I don't think Jonathan Adler has a good answer for this. I'm just thinking of the people who know this stuff. I've never heard a really good explanation for why the first generation of sort of post-war American conservatives, you know, the Buckley generation, Hayek, uh, I'm speaking very broadly here, you know, Kirk, all these guys, why they could have such bile and anger and animosity for the FDR years, um, but be almost entirely silent about Wilson um, and give credit where it's due. I, you know, I got on the, this trail largely because of the Claremont guys. They were the guys who were pointing, this is a very Claremonty pre-Trump Claremonti kind of argument of um, you have to go back and look at the progressive era as the sec a second American revolution in terms of its reorientation of the role of the state that all FDR is doing is building on, you know, the damage that was the damage that was already done or the, the foundations that were already laid in the Wilson years. And I've just, and I, I think part of it has to do with the fact that a lot of the early NR people and the, a lot of the early conservatives of the, the, the proto-conservatives of the New Deal era were veterans of the Wilson era and were either crazy-ass communists, you know, like James Burnham, um, or they were progressives who still saw Wilson as a, as a right-wing figure in a lot of respects because he was, you know, antipodal to both uh, Teddy Roosevelt and... Um, and Taft, 
And this is one of these things that really can screw up a look for ideological consistency when you look in the past is that the, the marker, the, so the DNA markers for a lot of these ideas are more scattered in the populate in the political population. And it's like, it's a little more difficult to sort of draw clean lines about all this stuff. But I remember like Wilson, when he runs in 1912 is running as a pretty right wing Democrat and the new, was it the new, not the new nationalism, the new, whatever, um, FDR, had, I mean, TR had the new nationalism and, and, and Wilson had the new something else. And, um, and he comes out of sort of the, the state's rights kind of thing because of the slavery thing. He's the first Southerner from a, from the Confederacy to get the presidency since the end of, um, reconstruction. And so just like the political touchstones of what makes someone a right winger or a left winger, it's sort of like libertarian types and people like me sometimes are like, you know, you look at JD Vance signing on for this railroad bill. That's basically all Democrats for it. And he's saying that makes him a real right winger. And you try to explain to people who grew up with different scorecards and it's kind of hard to explain. You go back to the 1920s and thirties. It's just the whole place is full of all of that where, you know, I mean, Ron Radosh wrote this fascinating book called profits of the right. And um, it was profiles of four supposedly right-wing figures, intellectual figures. And the right-wing intellectual figures are like John Dewey and <laughs> like all these kind of people who by any scorecard today are considered, you know, people on the profound left. And uh, the mixture of communism and, and all these other things just were just all these weird uh, magnets around the compass that make it really hard to sort of explain some of this stuff. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay. Round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I thought this was a fun one. If you were to design a college course on conservatism, what would the required reading be? It's a good question. Um, every now and then I get in trouble about providing reading lists for people. The question is on American conservatism, I assume. Right? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's probably not right yeah. I mean, um, you know, you probably have some selections from Burke anyway, just to sort of level set. Well, Matt Continetti's wonderful book, The Right, would definitely <laughs> available from all good booksellers right now. I read this book called The Tyranny of the Clitches once, but it was seemed informative. I wouldn't put that in there. Um, <laughs> um I, you know, I mean, I'm not trying to dodge this entirely. Um, because there are a lot of good worthwhile books on conservatism. Um, and we can put in the show notes, you know, this apparently like one of the pieces that, that 
sort of enticed Continetti into this terrible life he's chosen was this thing I had written 20 years ago on, on a conservative conservatism 101 or something like this was basically on this question and stuff about closing American mind and, you know, with Kirk and blah, 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 blah. Um, I haven't revisited that in a long time, but I guess, I guess what I would do is I would probably not assign a lot of books. Um, I would assign a lot of essays and book chapters. And it kind of depends on what kind of course on American history, on American conservatism it was. Was it like, here's Jonah Goldberg's, what it means to be a conservative course would be very different than here's Jonah Goldberg trying to teach a class on the history of American conservatism that is sort of um, useful for kids of all, you know, for, for people of all stripes kind of thing. Um, so, I mean, I would, I would, I would have you Xeroxing lots of chapters from Peter Watonsky's four volume, the wisdom of conservatism. Um, there'd be some stuff from keeping the tablets. There'd be stuff from the, you know, ISI keeps re-releasing, um, this book, what is conservatism that I wrote the preface for about 10 years ago. Um, which has a lot of great stuff in there. Um, um, but like if I'm doing a survey course, there'd be stuff from people I disagree with a lot in there. And, you know, what's his name? Sort of a Claremonter, Claremont adjacent guy. He recently came out with a big compendium of conservatism. Um, I did not read it. It was just one of these collections, but thumbing through it, I was like, okay, I see, you know, what these guys are doing. Um, you know, there's this time honored effort to sort of, um, change the canon based upon, you know, what is it that Orwell says that he who controls the past controls the future and he who controls the present controls the past. There's a lot of people wanting to control the present in order to control the past, to control the future kind of thing going on. And, um, maybe I'm just too exhausted to get deep in the weeds on, on, how I would like to control the future, um, on that. But, uh, there'd be a lot of soul. There'd be, I'd probably assign high X fatal conceit. Um, I would not assign road to serfdom. Um, actually, I don't know if I would assign a fatal conceit. I would assign a bunch of different essays, the knowledge problem thing. Um, I would take, I would definitely take, um, some essays from Irving crystal, including ones that are kind of problematic for conservatives today. Um, um, I don't know. I would not take the entire, maybe I'd take the introduction to the conservative mind. Um, i not, I would not assign that whole book. Um, you could read it for extra credit. Um, Robert Nisbet's exploration of, of, um, fusionism is like really, really, really interesting. Um, and not at all gung-ho for fusionism. Um, I would assign a lot. Nisbet's quest for community is probably one of those books I would actually assign soup to nuts. Um, I'd assign a lot of Nisbet. Um, anyway, I could go on. I mean, this is the kind of thing that's just, that's going to come into my head. So we probably should just stop that. And Illinois you for the rest of the day, which is <laughs> why I wanted to ask it. Uh, I think it, as usual, we could maybe end on a quick fire round of lighter questions. Uh, someone asked, do you have a favorite sci-fi or fantasy novel written this century? Interesting. This century? No, I do not. Um, I think it better be around. See, yeah, I, I couldn't even. I couldn't even name maybe five novels in general that I've read that were written this yeah, century. I mean, 
Um, I read the Diamond Age on my vacation in February. And I really liked it, but I think that was written in like 97. Um, so I don't, I wish I had more time to read more sci-fi. The person you should actually ask this question of counterintuitively, maybe for some people is our own Haley bird at the dispatch. Um, she, uh, Haley bird wilt. Um, she, um, uh, is a somewhat secret science fiction nerd. Uh, if John Bedhorance was in the woods and no one was around to hear him, would he still interrupt someone? <laughs> Um, how dare you, sir, <laughs> insult my friend John Fedoritz that way. He listens to this podcast. Whenever I ding him for anything, I get a text like 24 to 36 hours later defending himself. So I'm. Is I'm, that right? I'm surprised. Yeah. Well, it wasn't him who asked about uh, who wanted to talk to me about Kiss, was it? No. <laughs> That's disappointing. Uh, what is the closest thing you have to a favorite band? Uh. That's a good question. I mean, it, I, I'll say it, it used to be probably like, you know, in college, it was probably REM in high school. It was probably the kinks. I don't really have, you know, I have more like, I get really into listening to somebody for a little while and then I stop, you know, I, I, I'm a little ashamed to say I had, there was 15 minutes where I listened to a lot of ska, uh, mostly this band, the pie tasters. Um, but, um, I am not, uh, as you know, a musicologist. My, my wife, uh, Jessica, is far more person to ask that kind of question of. Um, I've been on, basically since he died, I barely really, it was barely on my ra ra radar. Um, but since John Prine died, I've been listening to a lot of John Prine. I've, in my middle age, I started to get really into Johnny Cash um, because most of the music I listen to is while writing. Um, I don't listen to a lot of music while driving and I don't listen to a lot of music around the house. Um, and it's, it's just funny. It's just like a couple of weeks ago or a month ago, my wife just turned to me and said, you know, this is one of my great disappointments in you is that we just don't listen to very much music around here. And I was like, I'm sorry. You know, um, uh, you might like this. So this morning, you know, I still get Fox News alerts on my phone. You know, I, I get these notifications and Fox sends me this notification saying a member of the Beatles dies at age 81. And I'm like, well, shame on you guys. You can't just tell me Paul McCartney or whoever died, you know, and you click on it and you go to the Fox website and you know who it was. Have you seen this? You know, who died? I have not. No. <laughs> was it like a roadie or something? What was it? Chaz Newsby, <laughs> who apparently played bass for a couple like shows in their early days in Liverpool or something. I mean, it's just so nakedly, let's get the eyeballs. Who cares? You know, and they should like, I'm only joking, but someone should just go kill one of the original Beatles to punish these people for for that bait and switch, you know, it serves Charlie you right. Charlie Cook was, Charlie Cook subbed for about an hour when he read that news. <laughs> He's actually one of the few people who actually knew who Chaz Newsby or whatever this guy is. I I'm sure he was. Him. Yeah. Like no one else knows what, you know, friggin' Chaz Newsby and like newbie. I'm sorry. There's no S Chaz newbie. Um, you know, I said it to my wife this morning and, and my wife knows Beatles stuff. And she was like, who the hell is that? You know, uh, how do you like your steak? 
Oh, uh, depending on the restaurant, because there are a lot of restaurants, when you say medium rare, they hear um, mildly cooked on the surface and then raw in the center. Right. Um, so I like if, 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 if I like a char, but medium rare, um, uh, but not just blood pouring out of the place. So, um, which I think most people understand where I'm coming from. So, but like there's some restaurants now where I just say medium, medium rare plus, you know, which is like one notch below <laughs> medium, but because I don't want to, I don't want it gray inside at all. Right. But I want pink to red, but not mooing. And if you say medium, it seems in a lot of places in the last 10 years, medium rare has become the new rare. And like rare has become tartar, uncut tartar, um, raw beef. Um, but uh, I'm very excited. I got a, a, a chef's blowtorch, which my wife just laughs at me constantly for using. But I can't imagine why. It doesn't sound funny at all when you say that. It scares the sh- crap out of the dogs, I gotta tell you. And um, uh, I am... Um, um, I have a very set view. I think hanger, not particularly if you can find it not grass-fed, because I think grass-fed is one of the great cons of the last 20 years. Everyone's bragging about how their beef is grass-fed. Screw that noise. That's EU beef. EU beef sucks. Um, you want American beef that's been fed Twinkies, corn, grains, hops. I mean, all those kind of... You want, you want like fatty, good... American beef. You want you want beef that has when it goes to Walmart has to ride around on a people mover scooter thing, right? And the grass stuff is way too gamey and chewy. I do not like it. Um, I'm not saying all grass fed beef is bad, but like, there's a reason why you know sometimes it's like just grass finished or whatever. Blah 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 blah. But anyway, I love hanger. I think it's the most underrated cut of steak out there. I'm not saying it's the best cut. It's the most underrated cut. It's getting much more expensive. I, I used to not talk about it lest people would find out about it. Um, but I have very strong views about how long it's, it can cook. And if it does, and sometimes it just, if you didn't get the marinade the way I like it or whatever, you don't get the char. And so I cheat because I can just bust out the blowtorch and apply char to, um, my steak. And, um, uh, and I, I, I will admit, I, I also, I love fried pork dumplings from Chinese, but like they've not yet mastered the technology to deliver those kinds of things where they don't keep cooking and steaming inside yeah. the plastic and they kind of, they lose that crisp thing. So I rechar them with my blowtorch. Um, and it's fantastic. Um, I used to refry them very briefly in some hot like sesame oil, but now I just take out the blowtorch and it, it definitely gets the moisture out of there pretty quickly. And Jess has yet to call uh, 911 or to infirm the local asylum. No, she just, she sees me do it and she just laughs at me. I mean, but th- this is, this is the life of, you know, she's chosen. There are many things I do that she just laughs at me. And I don't, I don't mean a hearty, I'm laughing with you kind of laugh. I mean, a contemptuous, uh, what have I done with my life? Kind yeah, of. Yeah. I, I, I immediately regret my decision kind of laugh. So, um, but yeah, there's that. So that's the kind of steak. Anything else? Uh, just one or two more, because okay. why the hell not? Uh, yeah. What is a good TV show that would have benefited from ending seasons before it did? 
Melissa, Marissa referenced Buffy to, in his question, which I think is completely wrong and which offends me. But I, I kind of agree with you, which makes me question a lot of things. I liked, I liked the ending of Buffy. I, I, I thought Buffy started kind of lame and didn't find its legs. I agree. Like I think if you watch the early ones now, they, it's, it's, yeah. it's difficult. It's like the third season is when they kind of figured out what they were doing. Um, uh, well, I mean, look, I mean, I, I don't hate mash as much as, uh, Rob Long and John Padoritz do, but every time I watch it, I'm like, I wonder more and more why I liked it as much as I did at one point. But I will say every single season of mash was worse than the season that preceded it. Um, the characters got worse. Every character that was replaced, replaced a worse care, a better character with a worse character. Um, and every season it became more sanctimonious and more, um, self-referential and self-involved, um, and, and more formulaic. Um, and by the time hot lips became, you know, a sympathetic character, you, people should have just thrown their TVs out the window. But, um, um, so somewhere in there, like somewhere, you know, around what, like the seventh season of MASH should have gone. Um, uh, what was it? Heroes was sort of legendary. Oh, good Lord. Yeah, yeah. For, uh, what is it? Sheldon says on Big Bang Theory, um, when he says how he needs closure for his TV shows, that they just continually lowered the quality of the show for so long until nobody <laughs> we cared how it ended. Mercy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, I don't, I, I really... Like I, right now, I envision Jack Butler going on a long marathon run by himself, not listening to music because he thinks listening to music while you run for miles on end is for posers and that real men running just to the to the syncopated beat of their own heart. Um, and I picture him when I say this, stopping dead in his tracks and running back to the office to to protest. But. Um, I think Lost should have stopped at the first season. Um, um, I think Battlestar Galacta should have, stopped, should have stopped at the third season. I'm not saying I didn't keep watching it, but it was so good until it decided not to be. Odd Couple just got better and better. Seinfeld got better. and uh, Seinfeld's last season probably could have gone, but they were making so much money and it was still so good. It didn't really matter. But, but Seinfeld's another one that built it did not get really good until like the third or fourth season um, and was almost canceled all the time. Grazier, I, I'd have, I think should have died a couple of years before it. Yeah. Did. That, they, they seem to be petering out. Um, I feel like there's some obvious ones. I, I, to be honest, you know, the Simpsons has been on so long. Should have died 20 years ago. Are you kidding? <laughs> From my understanding, it, it got really bad and then got better again. And like, uh, it's just been on so long that I, I can't, and it's been so long since I watched it. I can't really, uh, judge. Um, I think, you know, not to question the wisdom of the, the listener who asked the question, but it's easier to point to shows that were, that started, that started really strong, but were canceled anyway. Um, then shows that were really good but canceled too soon anyway you know i mean i mean like that went on for a long time but were were um 
were should have been canceled earlier. Um, I mean, the most you know, obvious one's Firefly. And but um one of the best examples is actually Ben Stiller's comedy show, which was hilarious. I watched it in college. It was fantastic. And it had all of these famous people went on to become really famous on it. But it was during the era where Fox broadcast basically, if you didn't have immediate rating success, they just dumped you. And so they killed the, the Ben Stiller hour or whatever it was called. And then it won an Emmy for best comedy show after it was canceled. Um, and Stiller goes up to accept it and says, screw you, Fox, you know, cause like I just won an Emmy for this thing. Um, there was a great show called profit. Um, or I was going to say, yeah, I know you yeah, like that. Um, there was, I thought an intriguing vampire show. There was basically a mob show with vampires that was on Fox for a little while. There was a really interesting arty show called Tribeca. Um, the, um, the Chris Elliott show lasted more than one season, but could have gone further. Um, so get a life, get, get a life, the show of Chris Elliott in it. Yeah. That's what, that's what I'm, I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you don't like Chris Elliott, it is a Good luck. terrible, <laughs> terrible TV show. It's a form of torture. Yeah. It really is. It's brutal. Um, um, but I, there was another show on Fox called Flying Blind, which had Tia Leone in it. That was really, really well done. Um, really different. Um, and I just think they didn't give some of those shows the time that, that they deserved. Um, I like the show on NBC called Black Donnelly's. That was um, sort of an Irish mob TV show. Um, they only gave that one season. Um, and there was this thing on HBO. I think it was HBO that was just canceled last year. Raised by wolves that. Oh yeah. That got canceled. Did go three. It went three seasons, but like that thing was like, imagine just waking up being a contestant on Japanese, on a Japanese game show while, while tripping hard on acid. That show was weirder than that. And I cannot, I cannot say whether I think it was in fact good. Um, because it was so weird and so gross and so discomforting, but I wanted to see where the hell they where the hell they were going with that thing. And it really bums me out that they canceled it. Um, have you watched Mrs. Davis? Uh, no, no, I haven't. Um, uh, because my wife went traveling after we watched like the first three episodes. It's on Peacock. I will say that the first episode is one of the most brilliant, surprising, interesting, fun, self-confident pilot episodes of any TV show I've ever seen in my life. Um, I loved it. I didn't love the subsequent episodes as much as I loved the first one, but I still like the subsequent episodes. Highly recommend it for people. If you don't like the first one, there's no reason to keep watching. But like, if you like the first one, there's still reason to keep watching, even if it's still trying to find its sea legs. Um, but anyway, and I'm not taking, I'm not taking anything away from it because it's in the show description. It's about a nun that fights an artificial intelligence. Well, on that note, I think we've gone far enough with this scintillating world altering conversation this far, but no farther as Jean-Luc Picard might say. <laughs> he, he would have pulled the plug before it even, probably would have gone back in time to prevent this from taking place.
There are four lights. All right. So um, I want to apologize to everybody for the self-indulgence of all of this. Um, but you can look forward to another self-indulgent solo podcast later this week. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, if you like today, you'll love tomorrow. Um, and uh, and thanks again to uh, Chris Starwalt and David Drucker. David Drucker was the guest, right? Yes. Yeah. I still haven't listened to it. I mean, literally, I feel like I was in a coma last week. I mean, I hadn't read anything. Um, more than two paragraphs um and uh um and i don't sound like it but i am so much better than i was yesterday i mean I, it's so like i i literally said to my wife the night before last if you told me i can get away with it without incurring lasting physical medical damage um but I needed to pay you $10,000 to be allowed to blow my nose, I would happily pay it. Um, I was in such terrible shape. I mean, it was just like, like, I don't know why the monkey had to wear its high school ring. Um, it was so bad. Um, but thank you to everybody who I'm going to assume was thinking nice thoughts about me, even though apparently they never bothered to mention me, mention their concern in the, in their emails and I know Heidi um, our friend Heidi sent a lot of questions um, I doubt we got to all of them um, but I, I did forward I, I don't like to look at the questions beforehand because I don't know what guy is going to pick um, but I will I will look I will look to see if there are any other questions or I'll discuss with guy and maybe I'll deal with some of them on the solo thing and um, if you can become a subscriber to the dispatch that would be super terrific awesome um, we would really appreciate it and, um, and we think you would too so with that I'll see you next time no you won't this is a podcast whatever It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.